welcome to the Monarch Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, John Sillis. On this week's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Anthony Walker. Anthony is an occupational physiologist specializing in the performance of tactical operators working in extreme environments. He is the Managing Director of Optimized Human Performance, a consultancy group specializing in maximizing the human capital potential of staff working in high-pressure, high-intensity environments. With 15 years as a professional firefighter and officer, Anthony has a unique insight into preparing tactical operators that can only be gained through a combination of research and experience. In this episode, Anthony talks about the logistical landscape of the Australian Fire Service, the impact of heat stress on firefighters, the impact of body composition on heat stress, and an effective pre and post cooling procedures to reduce heat stress on firefighters. Morning, Anthony, and welcome to the podcast. Yeah, morning, mate. Thanks for having me. No problem, mate. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on and speak to me. Um, you've been on my radar for a little while, Anthony. I've seen some of the research you've been putting out there around thermal stress within firefighters and obviously some of the work you've been putting up around just the overall health and well-being of fire service and first responders over there in Australia. Um, so I thought it'd be a really interesting guest to have on and just chat through some of your research. Can you uh, just give us a bit of an overview of your career so far for anyone who may not be familiar with you and your work? Yeah, thanks, mate. So basically, where I am now, so I currently sit as a station officer with an urban fire service uh, here in Australia. Um, my background, however, when I first came out of university, I'm actually a primary school teacher as a tra mm -hmm. through training. Uh, and I was employed at a large boys' school here as the sportsmaster there. So sport's always been on my radar um, with a background in, in rugby and training in rugby union. Uh, from there, I then went across to fire service, and I spent 10 years as an operational firefighter before getting promoted to being a station officer. Uh, during that time, there's a number of challenges that I've come across that have, have influenced my academic background, uh, particularly in the area of heat and human performance there. Uh, so much so that I've set up my own private consulting, looking at how we develop and maximise the operational resilience of your human capital. Mm -hmm. uh, but now, I'm lucky enough, we, in the service I work for, we are lucky enough to have a new approach whereby I'm sitting at a director of health and fitness across an agency. And that agency incorporates fire, ambulance, uh, and two volunteer organisations, which are our, our wildland fire. So we call that bushfire here. Uh, and also our emergency service, who are a storm response capability. Uh, so that's where I'm currently sitting, and hopefully that will continue. That's in, that's interesting. I mean, you say there, uh, you, you uh, came out of uni and were working within education. So what was it that prompted the the move from being in the education sector into the fire service? Is it something you'd always had an interest in? To be honest, fire was never really on my radar. Um, okay. I do, I do love teaching. I, I love the concept of education, and I still, I still relish the opportunity to do that, whether it's in a coaching or a, or just a teaching setting. Um, unfortunately, what I saw is I saw a change in how we teach people now. Uh, when I first started teaching, teaching was literally about how we develop an education for our kids. How do we, how do we create a love of learning? How do we, how do we create uh, curiosity in our, in our kids? Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, in Australia, we followed on the British model of basically marking everything on KPIs, mm -hmm. assessing kids against criteria so that teachers now in Australia spend more time doing paperwork and reporting to government agencies than they do actually teaching kids. I saw that coming and that was just, that's not what I signed up for. 
Yeah. Uh, and then at the time, firefighting came up. And yeah, at the end of the day, what little boy doesn't want to become a firefighter? And that's essentially where it came from. And I was lucky enough to get in first go. And that's kind of, that was 15 years ago. And that's where I've now sat. Nice. Okay, man. So for the guys who aren't familiar with the, uh, the setup over there in Australia with regards to your fire departments, can you just give us like a bit of a brief overview of what the logistical um, landscape looks like for firefighters? Okay, so basically we have a couple of different types of services. We have our urban professional services. Mm-hmm. We have our wildland firefighting services. And we also have services that are run by the parks and conservation. So you think your park rangers, they also have a firefighting capability. So in Australia, from a functional perspective, there's eight state, eight states, so six, six states, two territories, but they're essentially the same thing. And each of those has their own urban professional firefighting service, but they also have their own uh, volunteer rural fire service as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rural fire service, I think, is New South Wales rural fire service is the biggest fire service in, on, in the world. Um, and basically what they do is they have different regions for what they do. So from a logistical perspective, the urban firefighting looks after the cities and the volunteers look, look after the bush, which in a place like Australia is massive. Yeah. Um, in, once we get to major camp, campaign fires, we have a national fire service where there's a sharing arrangement. And what that does is it allows us to deploy uh, resources around the country as fires kick off. Um, we generally don't respond together in an urban setting. But in the wildland setting, in Australia particularly, we're, in, we, we're generally lucky in that our bushfires will start up in the north at this mm-hmm. time of year, so up in Queensland. And then as summer happens, it'll literally move around the country in a clockwise manner. So it'll come down through New South Wales. Um, the bushfires we had here, you would have seen on the news last year in yeah. my region, that was happening December, January. And then that then moves around into Victoria, which happens in February, March. So... At this stage, we can move things around. The big planes you see, the big helicopters. Uh, it's a massive logistical effort, just the sheer volume of things we do. So there is a level of sharing uh, at that level, but it's really problematic, particularly as our our bushfire season is getting longer and hotter. We're yeah. getting to a point where we're actually going to run out of resources because well, what we normally see is that, is that progression is just not happening. The whole country is lighting up at once. So how we do that going forward is going to be a real issue for us. And particularly in terms of manpower, mm-hmm. uh, our volunteer services, it's probably like you're seeing in the UK, people aren't volunteering much anymore. There's just too many things in their life. So our volunteers are a lot older. Um, you know, they're, they're having to give up a significant amount of time off work to support. Yeah. So what's happening now is the urban services are now starting to have to develop more of a wildland capability. That's the big thing, yeah. I mean, we're, I was going to ask just regards to like staffing over there as well, because we've got quite a big push right now for the retained guys coming in as like reservists and like for the full time guys. It's um, every uh, couple of years you'll see a big uh, recruitment campaign come up, but it is quite a desired uh, role to have, and guys will really push for it. So a lot of guys will apply, but only a small percentage will ever make it through. Is that the same over there for you guys, or? you tend to take in more of a regular batch of guys each year? No, so only a couple of our states have what you see as a retained service. Okay. Um, we're now in our smaller towns. You know, our big cities are generally full-time professionals. Our retains are only in those smaller towns, yeah. which from my understanding of the UK is a lot of, your, a lot of your towns and a lot of your environments. But 
it's definitely a it's a highly prized job. Um, traditionally, sort of for every twenty people you recruit, you're probably going to get eight or nine hundred applicants coming through the door. Yeah, and that that in Australia tends to follow a path where we see what the economy is doing as well. Uh, when mining's kicking off, those numbers drop down to three or four hundred. Um, as mining starts to dry up and those money starts, we then start to see the bigger numbers, the thousand, twelve hundred. So, as far as blue collar jobs go, it's pretty much it's pretty much the prize job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I mean, with regards to your role you're currently doing there, with regards to the fitness, health, and wellness side of things, is there any other like performance support staff coming in to the fire services over there now, with regards to things like nutrition, physiotherapy? any sort of physical preparation guys coming in at all, or is it just very much left up to the, the firefighters themselves to cover those areas? We're moving now towards that. I think in my service, we're very much in the infancy of that. Mm-hmm. Um, the bigger services like New South Wales Fire and Rescue, which is, it's a massive beast, 10,000 firefighters. They have a lot of this capability already in place. Um, they're still growing as well in that, as an industry, particularly in this tactical strength and conditioning industry, we're starting to, we're starting to understand that we can't be working in silos. It's not enough just to have an S&C coach yeah. with the best, the best gyms we can find in if we can't feed our people properly. So, so basically, we're in, the, we're in that infancy now. So we're, seeing, we're starting to develop and break down those silos so that we're starting to see performance teams much like the high-performance environment you see in sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the leading proponents in that was Mick Steely at New South Wales Police. Who brought that high performance model across to that police force? And again, it's one of the biggest in the world as well. And for the first time, he he integrated mental health, physical health, and nutrition all in the one spot. And that's the model we're all trying to play catch up on at the moment. Um, unfortunately, scalability. So again, something like New South Wales, just the sheer volume, sheer size of how big that state is, to deliver a strength and and conditioning capability across a state that size is really, really problematic. Uh, so we're going to need to start to become a bit more innovative. I'm lucky my fire service is only tiny. Um, mm-hmm. you know, Canberra is only a, a very small area, so I can, I can physically be in all those environments very quickly and we can turn things over. But unfortunately, with that also comes scalability in that, that all those resources cost money. So we're not going to get those resources in such a small jurisdiction. So we have to do what we can with what we do. So the future is really looking good in Australia for it. And I think in many ways we're leading the world in some of these areas. Yep. Um, but I still think we're, we're a long way from being really good and really sustainable. That's the other problem. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously I've seen a lot of stuff you've been uh, posting up and bringing attention to online with regards to overall firefighter health and wellness. You just talk to us a little bit about what some of the methods you're currently trying to implement to help uh, develop and improve firefighters' wellness and health. Yeah, so as I said, I think one of the things we're now starting to do is we're trying to move away from just fitness being fitness. Uh, We're talking every gamut of that. It's mental health. It's physical health. It's long-term sustainability. So one of my big bugbears is particularly we as an industry are really trying to create changes in diversity profiles with females um yeah at the moment the key metric is who can get the most females on the truck through the front door the problem is as an industry we've forgotten that they then have unique needs that we need to start to deal with so how do we prepare them physically how do we ensure that they have a long career 
Um, how do we manage them through pregnancy so that they have the best outcomes for themselves, the babies, whatever it is. But from an organisational perspective, how do we then reintegrate them back into the fire service where mm -hmm. there's no injuries? Um, we have an ageing profile. You know, our retirement age, much like everywhere else in the world, has crept out. So once upon a time it was 55, it's now at the 63. So how do I maintain the health of a 60-year-old firefighter, male or female? Um, you know, how, how do we work on a return to injury model? We've changed, we've changed from a pathway where we tend to just leave our people on their own. So yeah. what we're trying to do is we're starting to try and create a, a holistic rehab model so that if you're injured, you then come back through our system, much like elite sport, and putting those resources in place. Um, for me, particularly, I think science should govern everything rather than ideology. Mm -hmm. um, so it's engaging with those industry experts and academic experts, particularly the things that are, are of concern to us is sleep, uh, fatigue management. Uh, these are things that we can influence through strength and conditioning support. But until we understand the unique challenges, we're never going to address them properly. And I think that's our biggest gap at the moment is we simply don't understand. We, we don't really understand what firefighters do. From a from a physiological perspective, we we think we know, and you know we we have tests in play, in play. But so saying, unlike the British service in Australia, no professional firefighter does a fitness test post recruitment ever. Well, wow, okay. So I rec I recruit you at age twenty, and I just assume you're going to be fine at age sixty, which you know I, I belong to a union like everybody else, and I I can see why we don't do things like that. Mm -hmm. But from an organisational perspective, and also as a person in the general public who actually works, from an organisational perspective and somewhat as a taxpayer, I think we're going to break all these people. Yeah. We're assuming that we're doing this. And, and even the demographic of what comes into the fire service, once upon a time, they're all tradies. They're all brickies, carpenters, sparkies, plumbers, who on their days off, they were doing things that kept them physically strong. Um, you know, we're constantly picking gear up. All that sort of stuff would give you a level of resilience. Whereas now, most of the fire service coming in are like me, they're school teachers. Yeah. The people who don't come from that background, they don't come from a sporting background. So when it's been a real eye-opener moving into this health area where you assume that people have a base level of understanding how to prepare themselves physically and you should never assume because people don't anymore. So we're trying to build resiliency and we're lucky in our fire services, um, unlike police, we're not, we're holding the line on our recruitment standards. They're still very high for a reason because the job, the job will kill you if you're not doing what you're doing. Yeah. But particularly when you look at the police services, their standards are now so low, you're setting people up to have shortened careers. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, we all go to work for one reason, that's because we get paid. So work to me is, that that's a means to an end how do i want to spit someone at the end of their career who can play with the grandkids can put the boat in the water to go fishing can go gardening whatever it is that has to be our goal now rather than just you know i struggle with and you you, you see what i see on linkedin and facebook and twitter i struggle with the the constant messaging around you need to get fit or you're going to let your mates down you're going to get someone killed no one cares at the end of the day, that's it, it, it's just noise. It's it's about how do we create a healthy lifestyle so that people, you know, work shouldn't hurt you, work shouldn't kill you. Uh -huh. How do we work in that world so we're starting to really fall out into every aspect of our firefighters' lives?
So I don't know if I answered your question. I've probably gone around in circles a bit. No, I'm no, sorry. No, but... I really like that. I'm yeah. This is how you say looking at the, the full long-term spectrum of that individual's career and making sure that post-career, you know, they've still got a great quality of life. You know, they're not broken by the job. Um, I find that really interesting, that point you were talking about with regards to female firefighters. So obviously, on the one hand, people are just looking to get, you know, uh, more women within the service. But as you say there, it's just like, right, how do you look after them throughout their careers, especially if they take time off, uh, you know, during pregnancy and going away and having families? To all intents and purposes, you know, at that point, it's a detrained effect. So how do you help recondition that individual to come back in so they can hit the ground running? without any sort of untoward uh, issues for them. Uh, with regards to your research, obviously I've seen a lot of the work you've been putting on recently with regards to heat stress experienced by firefighters. I was just wondering, could you talk a little bit about, well, first of all, how you came about this interest within um, doing your PhD and your research around heat stress, but also just some of the physiological things firefighters can experience when they go into either, you know, a structural fire or uh, a wildland fire? Yeah, so how I came about doing it, it was actually interesting. What I've learned in life is we do things when we're self-motivated. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously, yeah, you sign up to be a fire, you know it's going to be hot. But the actual practical implications of that, so we had a high-speed rollover uh, when I was, it was fairly early in my career. Um, a couple of old people had rolled over in a car. It was a 42 degree day here in Australia, uh, hot sun, the whole lot. And it was an extrication that took us two hours. Uh, it was a big extrication to a lot of work, highly technical. Uh, at the time I was running marathons. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm a, you know, my marathon time was sub three. So I was reasonably fit, reasonably low body fat. And everything in the sports science literature would say that low body fat, high aerobic fitness makes you really good in the heat. No, didn't work. So I had to consistently come, go off the fire ground to have a drink, have a rest in the shade. And yet I was looking across at these older guys who, you know, we all laugh at those blokes. They're the old fat, slow blokes. And yet they were still moving. Yeah. They were still doing the job. They were, they were pacing themselves. They were doing enough that they could still achieve the job, even though everything we know in the science literature tells me that I should have been a superstar and they should have been rubbish. And it was the complete opposite. So my brain started to try and work out what that was. And I sort of started to head down that pathway. I was lucky at the time I had a chief officer who was really supportive of this. Um, And we then started to look exactly down that path. You know, why do firefighters get hot? Yeah, it makes sense. But what is it about their environment? So we know that we whack your PPE on you. Modern PPE has a Gore-Tex membrane in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or a similar membrane. And no matter what those companies like the Gore-Tex tell you how breathable it is, it's not. Yeah, you're, in a, you're, you're, in a, you're, in, you're in an environment where it's hot and you're now doing something that's blocking up my evaporative potential. You're going to cook people. Um, the nature of our PPE makes our job hard. Yeah. Um, but we need that PPE. So we, we now have to start to have that risk balance. So... You know, should I be going to a car crash in full structural firefighting turnout gear? Of course not. But next time you watch on TV a, a car crash, you see the thing, have a look what the firefighters are wearing. Why are they wearing that? Because we've always worn that. So we, it's this real mindset, but it has to be driven by science. So when we looked into this sort of thing, you know, we know we see core temperatures of our people 
we were, we were running a we have we have a heat chamber here where we could have it at about 100 degrees for our people where we tested them 20 minutes on 10 off 20 on just like a normal ba rotation uh and we were seeing core temperatures in excess of 40 degrees on some of our people well okay. um the, the industrial standard so if you look at an iso standard 38.5 means you don't go into an office you don't go to work yeah however the the nature of our job is you can't just say yep yeah, i'm done walk away we have to push our people through that so what is it how do we start to then best prepare them to be physically able to do this and again if you're working with 20 year old firefighters they're going to sustain it because their bodies are good enough but what about the 55 60 year old firefighter he's got hypertension he's you know he's got the high blood pressure he's got cholesterol he's got all these lifestyle issues there then you stick him in this environment and you make his temperatures, you know, get up around that 39. It's a recipe for disaster. So what can we do around there? And then that's where I moved into. But now, yeah, I think as a, I think the next person I see produce paper about firefighters get hot, you know, realistically, I probably didn't need to do that research. We knew it. <laughs> we need to be now looking at the nuances of that. And when we're looking into things like what are the immune responses to that? What are the inflammatory responses? You know, what does that cascade look like? And then what are the long-term implications of constantly heating people up? Um, from a safety perspective, how do we cool them down on the job? Can we pre-cool them? Um, there's a policy implications. Should you be wearing that gear at that time? You know, that, that comes down to every single situation and I never want to ever second guess another station officer for their call. But there needs to be a decision based on risk. You know, yeah. we go to a car, we go to a car crash because, you know, you watch movies, cars explode all the time in movies. In 15 years, I've never seen a car catch fire. I've seen them catch fire, but never explode like that. Uh -huh. So we're going to car crashes. And then from there, we stick ambulance personnel in with zero PPE at all. So it's trying to use science to underpin some of our decision-making. Um, and then we, we want to look at what are the long-term impacts of that heat. I, I, we, we released a paper, we did something looking at, you know, the links with mental health and ex environmental exposures. You know, we see, a, we see an inflammatory profile similar to that we see in a depressed population. So is it just by constantly heating our people up? Uh -huh. We see these pro-inflammatory responses. Is it by heating them up that we see yeah, a long-term resetting of their brain to then predispose them that when they do see that horrific traumatic event, is that enough to push them over the edge? Um, that's, that's, that's the new world I think we need to start to look at. How we increase their longevity, how we do that, and more importantly, how we, how we, how we use, minimise the environmental impact on our people. <laughs> that's interesting. I mean, could you just delve into that? So you talk about the inflammatory response there to heat stress. So what was that exactly, Anthony? Can you just give us a little bit more information around that? So in its simplest, in its simplest form, what we, what we looked at is when we see heat. So if you think within your, within your body, and some of the stuff we were looking at are called lipopolysaccharides. So they're a gram-negative bacteria that lives within your, within your gut. Mm -hmm. So at normal temperature, so when you're in homeostasis, you, they, that tends to stay put. What happens is over time as we heat them up, that will then come out into your bloodstream. Your blood will then say, your body will then, because our bodies are good at this, they then say, what is that? And then they'll then attack it. Yeah. So we see an immune response that will then start to kick off and go after that essentially a foreign 
a foreign incursion into their bloodstream. Um, what we see, they, they try to create um, nets to try and isolate that or localize that within a body and create clots. Um, that's fine if those clots are out in the extremity, but what happens if that clot shears off and heads north into your, into your brain or into your heart? You know, is there a cardiovascular response there? So do we see heart attacks? You know, what kills firefighters? Heart attacks. Yeah. Um, does it go into their brain? All of a sudden we see stroke. So that's the simple immune response, but that's also driven by an inflammatory response. So we see these pro-inflammatory, and they're, they're called a cytokine, but those are triggers to tell the immune system to do things. And those things, when they're constantly elevated, if you look at somebody who is depressed, those are clinically elevated naturally. And we're seeing these little spikes happening in our people. Uh, unfortunately, there's just simply not enough research there yet. To, yeah, it's, it's kind of like one plus one equals eight at the moment. We, do, we don't know. We can see one thing, we can see another thing, but we can't get that cause, mm-hmm. the cause and effect yet. Uh, but I think there's enough in there to start to say this is an issue. Again, we know that firefighters dropped drop dead a heart attack. So if there's an, inf- an inflammatory and an immune response that's triggering that, well, how do we minimise that? That's through cooling people. It's through making sure they don't get hot in the first place. It's all that policy stuff. It's about strength and conditioning, reducing the mechanical workload and increasing efficiency. So all these elements have to come into play. That's interesting for that because I know um, from reading around some of the research, obviously around inflammatory response and how uh, that elevated core temperature can take several hours afterwards and remain elevated several hours after you know firefighting activities. What what what's your opinion then on like the the role of shift work? So if guys have got increased um, inflammation twenty four hours after you know firefighting, how does things get like compounded? you know, over like uh, across multiple days. So say you're doing a couple of day shifts into a couple of night shifts before you have that break. What, what's the increased risks at that point? Honest answer, we don't know. Okay. Um, you know, all we can do at this stage, I think is we can speculate based on the data we've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what happens, I'd even go further to say, what happens if you go from one house fire straight to another one? Okay. So you're already starting low and then you go to another one and get whacked again. Um, think your Grenfell job. Yeah, how how long were firefighters operating at Grenfell, where they were constantly heated up over and over and over again because of the nature of their job? Um, yeah. We're starting to see a data set coming out of the US that no one's really picked up. Is that a lot of firefighters won't die on the fire ground, but what'll happen is they'll go home and they'll die overnight. Um, Base, yeah, they'll, they'll have a heart attack overnight. They'll, they'll go to sleep or they'll go to bed when they get back from a job and they won't wake up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is that that? Yeah, we think that's that inflammatory response starting to do that. It's thickening their blood. We're dehydrating them. So there's a dehydration factor there as well. So they're trying to, yeah, they're trying to pump sludge through a, through a pot. Um, again, in a 20 year old, not a problem. Yeah. In a 50 year old firefighter, who already has some of these other comorbidities that we need to start to address, this is a major issue. Um, and as I said, that, that's what we know in men. We know nothing about female firefighters because we as an industry have chosen not to, not to address these things, even though we knew they were coming. We just, you know, we can't even get PPE for our women that fits. We stick them in men's clothes. We stick them in men's boots, give them a men's helmet. Um, you know, I don't know if you've heard the phrase pink it and shrink it. That's something we do a lot of, you know, okay. we, 
we just basically we just give them smaller gear and assume that that's going to work and we're ignoring those physiological differences we need to address mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so what does an immune flam- immune profile look in a female yeah when they're in the menstrual at what point in the menstrual cycle are they already at increased risk yeah uh, emily Watkins up at roehampton's done some work there where in some women they're seeing there is an inf- increased risk at certain phases of the, the menstrual cycle in a lot of other women there's no risk factors increased um what about going through menopause? You know, how do we support our women going through menopause on fire trucks as they get older? You know, what does that do to their bone density? What does that do to their heat stress risk? Simple answer, we don't know. <laughs> um, and we can either ignore it and just hope that we get lucky or we can just break a hell of a lot of women until we work it out. And I don't think either of those is a great solution. Yeah. I was gonna ask you as well, so, Probably tie in, obviously, there's not been that much done on like female firefighters and that, but with regards to the, uh, your body composition of firefighters compared to younger guys versus your older guys, you're probably carrying a bit more adipose tissue as well. What's, what's the impact of having like an increased, uh, let's call it negative body composition on your heat stress within that as well? Is it a lot harder to cool from that? Or, you know, is it if you're carrying more muscle mass, you're going to struggle a bit more with that cooling effect? So I think what, from a, I think we need to go back to the not getting people hot in the first place. Okay. Um, we've we've recently looked at it, and so Ollie Jay at University of Sydney has has actually sort of answered that question regarding body fat and heat gain. So that actual adipose tissue itself doesn't really increase body heat storage itself. Mm-hmm. What it does is it increases the amount of work you have to do to shift that mass around. So that yeah. in itself creates heat. Um, by reducing the body fat, what you're doing then is you're actually then reducing how much load you have to carry. By increasing the muscle mass on the other side, you're also then increasing how more how efficient you are in something, which will then also impact on your body heat, your body heat gain. Because if you're more efficient, you're not working as hard, which means you're creating less heat overall. So those should be our two goals. And what we saw across our people is that muscle mass over time will generally it'll just generally be replaced by body fat so one of the things in the fire service they laugh is you know you do a kilo a year that's that's one of the traditional things you put on a kilo a year okay but a lot of a lot of our firefighters were very proud you know that i joined the job at 80 kilos and i'm still 80 kilos but when we looked at them with a dexa scan what we found was that they went from they're still 80 kilo but all of a sudden their belt size had gone from an 82 waist to a 90 waist and their body, their body composition had gone from say 10% body fat to 20% body fat. So simply by changing their body composition over time, they were using weight as their only metric. Um, yeah. As an industry, we still use BMI as a, as a metric for wellness in a fire yeah. service, which is just crazy stuff. Um, so we need to start to understand that. How do we keep body fat off acknowledging that over time, you know, I'm now in my 40s, it's starting to become harder and harder. How do we over time minimise that body fat or that, you know, that adiposity increase, but at mm-hmm. the same time minimise how much lean mass drops? As from a cooling perspective, you know, everybody cools at different rates through a multitude of factors, but as a, yeah, again, it's, it's, there's no equivocal answer here, but the more body fat you carry, the more insulation you're going to provide, which means you're going to, you know, you're going to lose less heat 
over time. Whereas someone who's incredibly lean will, will lose that body heat a lot quicker. Um, okay. Whether that's an advantage, I don't know. But yeah, again, like everything in science and what I've learned over time is there is no straight answer I can give you. Everything's uh, depends. <laughs> the old time classic in research and sport, uh, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you if I haven't seen anything or um, I haven't come across any of the research on it, but just from your own experience with regards to different types of firefighting. So for the guys who are fighting in more built up urban environments versus the guys who are out in more like wildland environments, is there any sort of difference you, you tend to find there within the heat stress? Just because uh, I'd imagine from the urban environment, say in a building, you're talking about 360 degrees of environment, whereas wildland, you've got the heat of the fire, but also environmental heat as well, I'm guessing, in there. So have you guys noticed any sort of difference, like in any sort of strategies you had to work with for those two environments? Yeah, essentially, urban firefighting. So yeah, t let's take the, take the extreme examples out of it, the Grenfells and things like that. On yeah. a day-to-day -day basis, a house fire, you put it out in an hour or two, it's done. Yeah. Um, you're not inside a building where it's, it may be 800 degrees above your head when you go in there, but a bit of water drops that pretty quick. So in terms of your heat exposure, you're going to see a real fast spike mm -hmm. where they will get very hot, very fast. But by the same token, we can cool them really fast as well because mm -hmm. their work rates over and done with. Yeah. Um, we can have a, we can, yeah, if, if we're lucky and we have enough resources, we can rest them and rotate them through so that they don't get those critical heats. Uh, where I am again, we've got a very small service, so our firefighters will have to keep going again and again. But somewhere across the border, say Sydney, they might throw 10, 15 fire trucks at a house fire, so you only do one 20 minute bout and you're done. Um, the wildland setting, on the other hand, that's something that a campaign will go for days and weeks. Yeah. So you'll have someone who they won't be, you won't see them in those 39s and 40s, but Again, we're not quite sure what the consequences of having that that low level 38, 38 and a half for five or six days. Um, yeah, the environmental heats, everyone, everyone looks at the big orange thing out in the front, the big fire. But an Australian summer's day is yeah. horrific, just the sun. So they're getting, you are right, they're getting that new, that different thermal load, and it's all the time. Um, you know, we we still don't we still haven't moved past giving people a bottle of water and saying, "There you go, there's your cooling sorted." Wow. Okay. Um, yeah, that that's that's the world we live in right now. We give people a bottle of water, that's it. We'll see you later, and that's both urban and the volunteer setting. And you'll see that in the UK fire services as well. Yeah. So, touch on that then, because I know you've you've spoken quite a lot and looked a lot at effective cooling procedures and that. So, for you, what would you say or recommend? you know, effective cooling procedures are for firefighters post, um, you know, firefighting activities? So everything, hate to say it, it depends, but <laughs> everything, everything, in our, everything in our world, we, again, we go back to science. So we know yeah. that the most effective, most, most time effective is cold water immersion. Yeah. However, in a training environment where everything's controlled, everything's where it is, we have a lot of access to resources, there's probably no reason not to use cold water immersion. So we saw with 15 degree water to the belly button, you know, 12, 15 minutes, we'd shaved a, a degree off, one and a half degrees off people. So there was a cooling in that training environment done and dusted. Yeah. Um, 
number of the British fire services now use ice slush as a pre-cooling method as well to try and create a bit of a heat sink. Again, to not let them get hot and then clean them up straight away. Yeah. Uh, in an operational environment, however, where you're standing on a footpath, yeah, I think some of the best options we probably have is we have these ice slush drinks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, and that, that doesn't need to be the old 7-Eleven 85% sugar thing. Yeah. Yeah. An ice an ice shaver and a bag of ice and some electrolyte powder is enough. That is again, it's it's not ideal compared to a cold water, but we have to weigh up that versus practicality. Um funnily enough, in the fire service, you'll see, and nobody else seems to do it, you'll see these chairs, these arm cooler chairs that have appeared, and they appear periodically in all sorts of different fire services. And yeah, everyone buys them because we like buying toys. Everyone likes to be seen to be doing something, but mm-hmm. from a practical perspective, they're, they're even worse than giving them nobody, nothing at all. Okay. Their cooling rates are so low, you can't drink while you're doing it anyway. So why would you do this? But we buy them because they are what they are. Um, yeah, in some situations and on a mild and moderate day, and let's say most of the UK is mild and moderate all the time, Yeah. simply giving them the right clothing underneath their turnout gear to allow for evaporation and natural cooling is probably enough. You know, do I need to give you a nice slush day on a 10 degree day? Mm-hmm. Probably not. But is a cheap cotton t-shirt underneath going to solve the problem or do we have something that's a modern wicking type material? So yeah. I think there's, there's got to be a spectrum from high to low and it's going to based on your temperature at the time. You know, you're going through a heat wave at the moment. What you're doing, what you're doing today would be totally different from what you were doing a month ago. Um, even the work rate at a house fire, if I go inside that house and I'm aggressively attacking the fire, I'm going to be a lot hotter than the guy outside who's just standing there pointing a hose. So we can't even treat everybody on the fire ground the same. Yeah, yeah. Um, and until we get a monitoring system to start to individualise what we're doing, that's where we have to go to these blunt tools, which, again, it's better than nothing, but we need to individualise what we're doing as well. And no one's got that nailed. That's an interesting thing you say there about trying to individualize it. Like, I mean, across the fire service, even across like, a group of guys, like, is it possible from a practical sense, you know, for, like, actual live events? Could you individualize that cooling methods at all, do you think? Or is it still very much just blunt uh, approach to it to try and cool across the board rather than individualizing across different firefighters? One of the things we're trying to do is we're starting to integrate our uh, our paramedic response. So we turn paramedics out with us to look after our people and our well-being. Okay. Um, they're uniquely qualified to make decisions based on things. And yeah, heart rate is a pretty good uh, a pretty good surrogate for a core temperature measurement. So even simply by looking at heart rate as as heart rate recovery, we can start to make decisions based on how hot someone may be. So the NFPA standard is after 20 minutes of rest, you, if your heart rate's still over 120, you don't go back in. Yeah, even simply applying something like that. So if your heart rate's 120 and my heart rate's 80, well, there's a pretty good chance I'm not heat stressed and you are. So I can be rotated straight back into the field. Maybe a bottle of water's good, but for you at 120, mm-hmm. okay, well, we need to be a bit more aggressive. Maybe it is the cold water immersion if we've got access to it. Maybe it is the slush drink. Um, Again, I think it's, again, we're very territorial, particularly in the Australian and the British fire services. The Americans do it better because the paramedics are part of their service. Yep. But we're very siloed. We push the ambulance staff away saying, no, no, you stand over there and the big boys are in charge. 
we need to be smarter than that. So even simply whacking a heart rate monitor on our staff. Yeah, you know, we used core, I used core temperature, so ingestible thermometers during my PhD. Okay. Um, they're not they're not practical. You got to have them four hours before they're used. So at you know, ninety Australian dollars a hit, are you as a taxpayer prepared to pay for somebody to have one of these every single day for their whole career? It's it's just not going to work. So we need to have we need to have some sort of surrogates. And I think that heart rate monitoring is probably it at integrating the ambulance service with us. Okay, okay. No, that's, a, that's an interesting concept on that as well. Um, some interesting stuff there to think about, especially I quite like the, the idea of, um, for the guys, like obviously you mentioned in Australia and the US, dealing with like much more higher environmental temperatures anyway as well, of just the, the pre-cooling, the slush, but just to bring that core body temperature down uh, before they step into that, that hot environment as well. Is, is there, has there been any work done on that, on that at all? Just seeing like how does that improve performance? Like can guys push for a little bit longer before they see that spike in body temperature or is that still underway? It's under there. It's, it's, it's not as advanced as we see in athletic mm-hmm. settings. So we've seen in athletic settings in a numerous, um, yeah, the pre-cooling does, it, it produces time trial benefits in cyclists, in runners. Yeah. But again, they're not wearing turnout gear. Um, we know that again from Ollie's stuff out of Union New South Wales, we know that it reduces your sweat rate. Mm-hmm. So in an environment, say a hazmat suit or something like that, actually not sweating is probably a good thing. Yeah. Because the sweating's not doing anything for us other than dehydrating us. It's not cooling us down. So if we could actually delay sweating, that would that's there's another advantage there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um some of the British fire services, so down to the south there, have looked at, they use slush as before they go into their hot, hot fire environments, so their training environments. And some of that has happened as a consequence of essentially putting people in hospital and cooking them. This is one of their risk mitigation strategies. And to my knowledge, nothing, there's been no adverse events following this. So by doing that, it's caused a good outcome. But... Again, we don't want to go one plus one equals eight because cause yeah, they're not always the same thing in that there may be other things going on as well around their procedural impacts and things like that. So what we what we know in the athletic setting works there, it may not work for us, but it may work. Um, but you know what? I think if we err on the side of caution, pre-cooling is going to work better mm-hmm. than doing nothing at all. Yeah whether that's a slush or if you've got time at a hazmat incident, whether that's just, you know, the, the old cold wet towels around them to try and drop their body temperature, increase their workload, reduce their cognitive strain. Yeah. And cause that's another big thing. If, if they're, if they're, they're not functioning well cognitively, they're going to get hurt. Yeah. So if we can just, even if we can shift that curve to the right, you know, even 5%, I think that's worth the effort. That's interesting. That's interesting. I was going to say, just with regards to the uh, like the PPE, like for your turnout gear as well. What what do you see as the impact of that? You're saying like some guys are still wearing rocking the old cotton t-shirt underneath that, uh, uh, or some guys are switching up to more of the newer fabrics or sweat wicking and that. But obviously, inside your PPE, you've got that Gore-Tex layer that's going to add to that, uh, despite claiming to be breathable as much as it is. Do you, do you think uh, the PPE needs to change at all or is it, is it on a good strike with it? Or 
I don't think fundamentally PPE can change. It, okay. It's in, in the risk management world, the modern PPE we have is sensational. We go yeah. so much further into houses than we ever used to. It does its job. Um, the Gore-Tex, and I'm picking on Gore-Tex, it could be any sort of brand that does it. Part of the reason we brought that in was to stop steam burns for our people. Okay. But now our biggest concern is actual chemical ingress and cancer. So we need that. So when we're dealing with the carcinogens coming off those burnt products, we actually mm -hmm. need those those barriers to stop the chemicals coming through to our skin. The issue then lies in why, where do you wear it and why do you wear it? Yeah. So do you wear that stuff when you're out cutting up a car at a car crash? Um, you know, when you go to a wildland, so I, you know, through Twitter, I see what's happening in the British fire services. So they go to those marsh fires and they're wearing long turnout pants on their, on their bottom. Mm -hmm. Why? You know, it's, it's a different type of fire and a different type of environment. Whereas in Australia, I wear, I wear essentially a, a pant, but it's made of Nomex. So they're actually fireproof pants, but they're not the big, heavy, bulky Gore-Tex type thing. Yeah. So we just, short answer, the PPE does what it does. We as an organization and an industry need to get smarter and realize that firefighter uniform isn't the big yellow stuff we wear. Mm -hmm. It's what's under it. The cotton t-shirts, the reason we have those is they're $5 a hit. Yeah. You know, we looked at the wool, we looked at wool ones, they're $50. You as an organization, which one are you going to buy? Yeah. Um, sure. So unless a significant amount of money comes into fire services, which I'm watching you, your fire services get smashed by your austerity measures. Yeah. Uh, and COVID's going to cause us all sorts of grief here. No one's going to buy that gear for people. So we need to be a bit more, a bit smarter about what we do. You know, under my turnout gear, I have to wear these long pants. Well, they're rated for me just to wear my underwear. So why am I wearing my pants? Again, because we've always done it that way. So as an organ, we just need to be smarter about what we do. Okay. No, that's... It's an interesting perspective on it and really good to think about that, Anthony. With regards to like everyone I chat to, I'm always interested to find out you know, what they're reading or being involved with with regards to their own CPD and stuff like that. So common question I ask everyone is like, can you give us a, a book, an app or a website recommendation that you found useful or insightful? Yeah, I'm going to go out of the sports science world um, okay, and cool. science-y type world, I think. One of the things that you know, I'm only a reasonably new officer, so I've only mm -hmm. been doing as an officer for three years, four years, following good leaders and how they do that. So one of the books that I found really, really enjoyable and really insightful was a book by David Marquette. It's called Turn the Ship Around. And it's about a nuclear a captain of a nuclear submarine. And he talks about decentralized command and pushing in, pushing decision making to the individual works in my environment from a leadership perspective, but also from a global perspective, again, how do I get a policy so that when we talk heat stress, how do I enable my station officer to make a decision on the fly to keep his people safe? So I think, yeah, I think to me, that's, that's something that's driven a lot of my thinking, both in the leadership space, but also in the science space. We can't throw blanket decisions over everybody and expect everything to work the person mm -hmm. at the ground or the person at the real interface is the only person who can make a decision and should be able to um we talk leaders intent yeah i would like you to put the house fire out i don't care how you do it that's your job but i want that out so that's 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 a book that i've really enjoyed and i sort of move more and more in that space nice i'll definitely have to check that that sounds brilliant mate um 
So going forward, mate, uh, how can anyone who's listened to this, you know, find out a bit more about you and, you know, get in touch with you? What's, what's the best, uh, best routes into that? I'm pretty active on Twitter. So it's uh, walks547 is one word for, for Twitter. Uh, also, my website and my emails off that would be ohperformance.com.au. Um, I'm available on both of those and more than happy to chat to anybody who really anyone who wants to listen to me, I'm happy to chat to. But um, I think the more as a community we talk and especially in these COVID times where we've all been forced inside, yeah. we're actually, it's, it's intriguing that we're actually talking more than we ever used to. Uh, there's so much information out there now. People are happy to talk to you because they have time. Yeah. Um, and I always have time for someone who wants to have a chat. So yeah, either of those will be good. That's awesome. Thank you very much, Evan. I'll make sure I'll pop all that in our show notes so everyone can get in touch with you, mate. Uh, thank you once again, mate. Really insightful conversation. Getting a good understanding of the, the role of the firefighter and the, some of the stresses they're facing, particularly around heat stress as well, mate. So thank you very much for taking the time on that. Not a problem, mate. Thank you very much. No worries about it. Okay, speak to you soon. Okay, guys. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you enjoyed the content here, please check out our website at monarchhumanperformance.com and sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date with future podcast episodes, articles, and upcoming content, including trend programs and live and online workshops.